This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. Now, the normal way that we have done our introductions in the past for our episodes has been asked the person we're interviewing to simply introduce themselves, say who they are and, and what they do. So, mm-hmm. Christoph, I will keep the tradition going and ask you who you are and what you do. <laughs> so I'm Christoph von Tommen. I'm the CEO of Pronovix, which is a consultancy that specializes in developer portals. It's a bit complicated because we have a product and we do services. But, you know, if you want to find out more about that, go and look at our website. I'm a bioengineer by education, but I've spent all of my career in software. So there's a lot of that ecosystem and platform thinking and that kind of stuff that's sneaking in through the back door where I'm trying to apply some of the things that I remember and that I see in my day-to-day, in my garden and around mm-hmm. me in nature, that I try to apply to, to software systems and, and the social technical systems that we help to create. Both complex, uh, complicated systems. Yes, or co- complex, 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 I would say. They're definitely complex. And uh, Cherryleaf and Pronovix have worked together mm-hmm. in the past. And you wrote an article on the Pronovix blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of your colleagues suggested it might make a good conversation topic for the podcast about AI and APIs, which are probably the two hottest topics mm-hmm. in documentation. So it might be good to start by, do you want to summarise what it was that that article was about? This is already a couple of months ago that we tried to organise this earlier, but then we had a bit of a hiccup and then the holidays. But already a couple of months ago, this was when the, the hype train was really starting to roll out of the hype station at at, uh, at unprecedented speeds, let's say. I've never seen a trans takeoff with that kind of fervor in, in, in the software world. And I think what I wanted to do was to challenge a little bit the immediate instincts that a lot of people had was, okay, so how can we use large language models to serve our documentation? So we're going to replace our documentation site with a large language model. There are several things that that came into that article that I wrote based on a lot of thinking I've done about software systems and social technical systems. And what's the difference between an organic, complex, adaptive system and a software system? And what are they different? How are they different? And what are they good at? And now what do we need to do with this? And I wanted to challenge people. You don't necessarily need to go and install your own large language model. Mm. There's lower hanging fruits and there's other things that this change will uh, trigger in the ecosystem, in our wider society, that probably you can take a stance on and that you can get ahead of the game by doing some other things. So that, that was the, the intake for the article. And I've, I've hinted at some things, but I haven't gone into the details yet. So as you say, we, we've been talking about having this conversation for, for a while. Since you've written the article, have your ideas changed? I think it fundamentally they didn't. Well, they, they have deepened. And, and like last week at API Days in London, I was actually talking 
with a couple of people about how to declare your interfaces. We started talking about maybe we should have a new standard for this. <laughs> and, and there's a new blog post that I need to write uh, that, that is actually a continuation on this. It's also about AI readiness, but it's like a little bit more tangible already. It is still this, the same idea about making a clear separation between this generative and authoritative that is still there. And yeah, just like getting used to computer systems now operating in different modes than what we're used to. So we've also been on the same path in looking at this, uh, at APIs and thinking, oh my, at AI, generative AI and thinking, oh my God, this is going to change things and where do we fit in? And what we've done is has developed a training course, an e-learning course on this. And you've mentioned something there that was in your article and that was actually one of the questions I had, and that was about generative and authoritative information. Mm -hmm. So do you want to expand on that, on how you see the difference between the two, and why it's important to, to distinguish between the two? Mm -hmm. So the, I think the best way that I've, I've found to explain it is, imagine you go into an office building, if, it, if it's still not all remote and it actually still has an office, you go to the front desk and you talk to the receptionist and you ask them, do you know if John is in? Or, or yes, I, I'd like to speak to somebody from support or I'd like to know a little bit more about your product. Then the receptionist will say, well, from what I know, I've seen John, I think I've seen John coming in, but I'm not sure who that is, but I think he's in. Or yes, let, like, yeah, I have some vague ideas about what our product is and they'll say something, but then they'll say, let me look it up for you. And they'll go into their system and they'll use an authoritative system that actually knows like, yes, John has passed the gate. He hasn't left the office. So he must be inside of the building. And then let me look it up. They'll look up their phone number. They'll give them a call and they'll come back and say, yes, John is in and he's waiting for you in reception area. This is the difference between generative and authoritative. The generative part is what humans are really good at. It's like giving a first approximation, kind of exploring a little bit the landscape, providing hooks that you can use to start doing research. But then the authoritative system actually goes and fetches the information and says, yes, I am 100% sure this is true or this is not true. And the really interesting part is that we're used to computer systems doing the authoritative bit. We're not used to them doing the generative bit. This is new. And this is where it gets us completely confused and start believing that this is going to be magical or something. But it's, it, it is just like with humans. When you, when you hire somebody new to do a job, they need a lot of training to be able to do that job. And they'll need a bunch of systems to support them to actually be able to do that job with precision and in a, in a really qualitative way. Like if you, if you just take a person from the streets and ask them to do something, it's not going to work. And even if you train them, even people that have spent decades researching and developing like researchers, they will still rely on their computer systems to go and, and validate the things that they're saying, because we, we just don't remember all, we, we don't rely on our, or, or, or we can't rely on ourselves, on our memory to be able to do all of these things. We have grown to rely on, on our systems and our technical systems to support us in those functions. 
So this is the challenge of hallucination, where if large language models don't know the answer, they, they make it up. Yes, and I think the challenge of hallucination is a labeling problem, because it, when you go to a receptionist and you ask them, uh, what do you think? They'll, they'll come up with an answer, but they'll say, I, I think that, I'm not sure actually, uh, let me look it up. So that, that is still something that we need to figure out. How do we make these generative systems give an idea about the, the reliability of what they're answering? But it goes beyond that, that hallucination problem, I think. It's, it's about composite systems that are much more capable of doing things than any of the two systems on their own uh, can do. So we had this initial thing where it, it, everyone was thinking, oh my God, there'll be no need for technical authors, technical writers, there'll be no need for, for documentation pretty quickly. Yes. It, it's become clear that you need authoritative source content to get good answers out of an API. How do you see the role of curated, well-written documentation in this landscape where people are using generative AI systems to provide the right information? I can imagine content harvesting systems that are self-correcting and that mm -hmm. are that are validating and, and so on. But I think that's still quite a way ahead in the future. Also, uh, kind of like making sense of the whole or just really like selecting the good stuff from the bad stuff because all of what generative ai is doing is basically generate a bunch of random stuff and then little by little getting better at saying good things purely because there's a human that has been training that system i wonder if in in a large language model context if you were not going to need even more humans to train those systems than then in a pure just declarative documentation model and and i think the other aspect is things like how do you make sure that the ai that your system that your large language system has the right information that is up to date like you i think you could imagine a system that is just feeling its way to reality and that's when people start complaining or oh, there must be something wrong but that's kind of a really terrible way of doing business you know like where you need to have people complain or give negative feedback to the system to for it to start seeing like, oh, actually, probably there's something wrong in my model and then start adjusting weights to system. So I think probably the experience is going to become much more advanced and much more interesting, but the amount of work to deliver that experience might be equivalent or even more than what we have today. So in the past few weeks, and it really is just the past few weeks, there's been a couple of approaches to to this problem that have come out. I, I don't know if you've um, had a chance or come across them yet. One is RAG or Retrieval Augmented Generation, and the other is to interface with APIs for getting mm -hmm. information. The second one I am familiar with. Uh, so the, the idea with mm -hmm. augmented generation is that you use the large language model purely as a way of generating natural language answers. Mm -hmm. And what you have is you have a bucket of, of information, which is the, the authoritative source. Yes. So somebody asks a question, there's a gateway. It looks for the source content that has the answer that somebody's asked. Mm -hmm. It then prompts the source content into the prompt that goes to the large language model with the user's question. 
and then lets the large language model find from the, the source where is the right answer that. And therefore, the large language model doesn't use any of its own data sets yeah. to find the answer. It only uses the information that it's been given from the from the user documentation, and then it provides the answer. That's one approach that the people are, are taking. You've got limitations with that in that you've only got so much content you can put into yes. a prompt, but that means it only gives an answer from an authoritative source. And then the other way has been discussions on, so instead of having a database, doing it by APIs, which yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I said you may yeah. have come across. Yes, yeah, so I think this is where the big dream for this technology is the idea of a general artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. of an AI agent that interacts instead of you with the world. So it can go and search information and yeah. can kind of like pre-filter information based on what it knows about you to, to make certain uh, predictions about the content that you probably would want to engage with and then help you to to find your way to the right content. And I, I think one of the things I suspect is happening and it would be really interesting to see it was that I suspect that the next feature phones that the large mobile phone manufacturers are working on probably will be able to run LLMs like on the device or, at, wow. or I don't know, I imagine, right? If they've run LLMs on a Raspberry Pi, I think it was really terribly slow. I don't know yet how much computation power you really need. I, I know that it's horrendous and it's a lot actually, but I would imagine that this layer, this translation layer will move into the edge. I think th there's a lot of things that can go wrong with this when you centralize it. Imagine you give ChatGPT the right to do API calls against your bank account. Mm -hmm. It's not a very appealing <laughs> proposition, right? Imagine that an AI is starting to interact with the world through APIs. There's all kinds of ethical problems with that. Who's taking those actions? Is that ChatGPT or is it you that took that action? Mm -hmm. And now you could imagine, but if you own the device and if you own the model and it's in your own device and, and so on, then it becomes very interesting because then it becomes almost an extension of you as a person that is able to do certain things out there in the world instead of you with your supervision and your control. That's where we're going towards. And APIs are the perfect solution for interacting with the world because that's what we've been using them for, for programmatic access. And now we have something that's becoming more and more human-like that we can use as a fil translation filter between us and and that programmatic world. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff ahead of us. Interesting, because I've seen there's some YouTube videos of people who have installing uh, large language models locally on their desktop and then putting all of their information in so they can just ask a question and it'll retrieve, answer it from the Word files and all of the different things, well, mainly PDFs rather than Word files from that. And the processing requirements and the size of these databases I hadn't even considered a potential for for it being on a, a smartphone but the banking thing's interesting because one of the risks at the moment with large language models is what's called prompt injection attacks mm -hmm. where you can do malicious coding and there is at the moment no defense against those so if you are giving an AI system access to behind the pin banking <laughs> then there is a risk that somebody could inject code via a prompt in, get into a banking system and 
and potentially raid one or more person's bank accounts. But like the real value of these systems. So if this is what we're going for, for this layer between humans and machines, then we will need to, to make sure that the human that owns the bot <clears throat> is approving what's what's happening in their name. Do you want to talk, and we've, we've been touching on this now really, of, of AI agents. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a bit more about what you wrote and or your current thinking on that aspect? Platform APIs and developer portals? Yeah, and yeah, yeah and, and perhaps even AI agents. So platform APIs, I think there's two layers of APIs that are roughly speaking, and it's always uh, dangerous to make like binary or classifications are always hard. But roughly speaking, I think on the inside of organizations or organizations are working on platform APIs that are APIs that are enabling that are enabling people inside of the organization to do, do complex things faster. And the, the benefits that they bring is in that they're a bridge between doing things at scale and scalable infrastructure that you might have created and doing innovation. And what platform APIs do is, or what any piece of a platform does, is it makes it possible to do innovation in a scalable way so that you can really rapidly iterate and make changes and do new developments without incurring lots and lots of technical debt because you've you've done it in a way that you're reusing modular building blocks capabilities that you've built in your organization that you can build into those new business applications that you're building then there's on the outside you have the what i call interface apis they're apis that are exposing some of those capabilities that you have on the inside to an outside world, either as an API product that you're selling or, and, th and this is where actually most of these things are, because most APIs are not about monetization. There you have APIs that help organizations to build ecosystems and to interface with their ecosystem partners and facilitating those interactions. And you can imagine it like, like our cells in our body, where you have preserved hormonal receptors from cell to cell to cell, but depending on the cell, it will do different things. And I think that's when you're interfacing on, so you have this on the platform level, but you also have it another layer on, on the inter-individual level between organizations. You often, well, sometimes see that with white labeling of products as well, where somebody is selling something and it's delivered by somebody else and it's all controlled via the APIs. <clears throat> so if you order something on eBay with delivery, you can track where your parcel is, but it's actually yes. the, the postal service or whoever that's actually delivering that, yeah. that aspect. And there, there's there's some interesting stuff because you start mixing inside and outside and you might be, like, as you said, like you might be branding something as a capability that you have in-house, but actually it's a bolt capability. But I think it, to some extent, these sometimes can be mixing. Sometimes you might have an internal capability that becomes something you're selling also on the outside. But at the same time, like the way that living organisms work is that they have a boundary where they decide, is this harmful or is this going to help me? And if it's harmful, then you close the gates. If it's going to help you and you can pull energy out of it or it's more information that helps you to, to become more adaptive and and survive better in your environment, then it opens the, the gates and 
it lets it come in. So, so some, something like that. So say you're an organization that has those types of APIs within your organization. In terms of where AI fits into that, is it in enabling people to use and apply those APIs without knowing how to code, i.e. natural language? Is it that you ask a question and then the AI knows which of all of the APIs it needs to pick and, and it's like a, a clever chaining device that makes that makes it for you or is it both is it one more than the other how do you see the ai bit assisting where you have those apis in place i see it as the interpretation layer that translates between a human that is just saying something and yeah. then and then a machine that is more authoritative about what it's doing but that needs certain prompts and like an and exploring like what are the prompts that you need to be able to make the system work and like right now we have the the whole prompt engineering thing where humans are learning a new language mm. uh, it's basically a new programming language that's a, a, a lot less exact than what we're used to it's a, a lot more permissive and mm. and vague it, actually it's not even deterministic like this ai system like large language models I think they're not well they're on purpose not deterministic like you, you give them the same prompt and you get something different every time and and that's what actually makes it more human or more, more relatable it's a linguistics driven programming language in some ways not, the better you know the english language or the grammar structures of english or, or another language the better prompts you can write and the better results you get yes yeah, so what's fascinating is that We've gone from, in software engineering, it's all about predictability. Like you, you don't want a system that's going to do random stuff. You, you want to make sure that like surprises typically are bugs. And so when, and, and now we've developed this new technology where surprises are features and, and where the ability to delight us with new answers and unexpected behavior is actually be the main feature of this technology which is fascinating because that that's that's a whole different types of software engineering uh, than what we're used to yeah, yeah. it's a uh, fascinating times <laughs> let's say it like that let me go back to something again you mentioned about having large-scale curated apis ready for mm -hmm. as and when API, ai systems come in to get to that point, what are the challenges that organizations face from where they might be today to, to have that quantity, that robustness of, of APIs there ready to then apply AI? I think right now, this is about what is the interaction surface you have as an organization? And, and I think right now that interaction surface, first of all, that interaction surface is fractal in nature. Meaning that, I'll explain, make it more concrete. How, if somebody wants to sell a product to your company, how do they find out to whom they should sell it? How can they start that interaction? A lot of large enterprises have created vendor systems that will guide you through a set of steps that you have to go through to be able to get approval and so on and so on. So there's some of that. But then there's also the initial request for going through that process. How does that work? In practice today, that's probably the interests of individual people that you need to somehow trigger. And 
probably for sales, it will always be a little bit like that. Although that you start seeing now, I, I don't know how it is for you, but for me on LinkedIn, more and more I start seeing automatically generated interactions. Same mm. on, with email. It's actually not going as fast as I thought it would have gone. So mm. it's, it still is somewhat manageable. But this barrage of input and attention grabbing, there's, there's a tsunami coming. And to be able to prepare for that tsunami, I think that we need to become deliberate about what interfaces we're, what, what ports are open in our organization and how we allow people to interact with us. And you see this already happening like in support, or you see some really terrible examples of that in support where, you know, some organizations don't even have support. <laughs> but I'm sure you have had this experience where you have a problem and you start looking and you have to like phone into a phone number that's a paying number and then they put you on hold for half an hour like basically they're they're inflicting a massive amount of pain so this is like one of the terrible examples another one is a chatbot i had this when i ordered a package online and this was the second time that they were not able to deliver to my address because the the person who was supposed to do delivery said that the address did not exist and so in, i tried to like explain hey probably maybe there's a delivery guy that you have here in our neighborhoods that's not doing their job or mm. something but like this address really exists so mm. you know please fix it but i ended up talking to a chatbot and mm. and we went like three times around where i'm basically mm. starting from scratch again explaining the same thing over and and uh, yeah this is conversational design that's where they're trying to solve everything with a machine and it doesn't work because yeah. you need a human to catch the slack and to 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 be the the grease in the machine to make sure that all the problems do get solved and people are not getting super frustrated. Well, what I'm getting to is these are anti-examples. Hopefully we'll do better in the future. Hopefully we'll have like supports and 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 this kind of interaction interfaces that are where there's a good fallback and that actually detects when the fallback is necessary when there actually people can step in. But I can imagine that to be able to deal with the barrage of messages that is coming, that everybody will have to weapon up and that's, or, or arm up that you, it's basically, it's an arms race that's to be able to deal with the, the AI worlds and the barrage of messages that we're going to get that you'll have to have your own AIs because otherwise you just won't be able to get anything done anymore because there's just so much information flooding you all, all over the place. Well, the big developments at the moment within AI are, I think they're called headless videos, where the idea is that you can have an avatar present on a video. You can write, you can get AI to generate the text of what the avatar is going to say. So you can have a sausage machine that's generating promotional marketing videos all the time and then put them onto places like LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube. And you can have people in low cost countries just generating all of this content. And you're saying that it's going to be up to us to filter that. I was hoping it would be done by LinkedIn and YouTube and so on, that they will weed all this stuff out. But you could well be right that it gets past them. It gets sent direct by email and by instant messaging. And we have to deal with a lot of that content. I think it is, how do you know if a message is legit or not? Even a generated message might be legitimate. 
but it really depends on the context and a platform like LinkedIn, they have some of your context of your personal context, but primarily filtering is being done on, on a platform context level. Mm -hmm. And I think there'll be more and more content that slips through and then having something that knows you through and through. And that is allowed to know you through and through, because that's the other aspect. I, I would hope, but we'll see, because it might be another centralized nightmare. But I would hope that this could be a new generation of the open web, where, where our smart devices are becoming, you know, the filter for things. But I'm not sure, because there's a, equally a big chance that's like one of the big cloud providers is going to be sitting in as a spider in the spider web and knowing you better than your phone and, and doing this filtering for you. Who knows? I don't know if people will allow it. I don't know if governments will allow it. Uh, it's going to be an interesting question. The lazy ap approach is to let software do the filtering for you, which then means that they control what you are seeing, which is a... a... Well, it's kind of the Faustian bargain. You know, you get it for free, but they know everything about you. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. It's it in the world. I have my well, most of my career I've spent in the Drupal community, where it's all about the open web. Like, how can we make sure that people can own the instruments of content creation, so that a small business does not have to depend on a Facebook page mm. to be able to be in business. I think this could either strengthen the open web or it can weaken it further if the investments are too big. Although that there's, there's some really interesting things now with smaller like LLMs that are still quite powerful. And then if you do what, like those two patterns we talked about, where you don't rely on the LLM to be sufficiently trained to be able to provide for the authoritative content, mm -hmm. then maybe we can deal with slightly more stupid models that are using some, some of those other sources to, to provide the, the more intelligent answers. Yeah. It's going to be very fast. It's going to be fascinating to see how, how it all works out. So have you come across any organizations that are doing this today or, or on the right direction that people should keep their eyes and ears focused on? So I had a conversation last week with a developer at PayPal, mm -hmm. and he said that they just published a graph of all their APIs to, so that I'll need to go and confirm that I can share this, but I, I'm pretty okay. sure that I can share it. But he, he said that basically what they wanted to do was they wanted to enable AI to consume APIs. And, and for that reason, they had to publish their graph. Mm. And that's what he did. And he said, and there's a couple of other companies that have done this. GitHub has one of these. I think Microsoft has one of these. Mm -hmm. So yeah, th this publishing your interfaces, I think, is is what the, the step is. That might not be a developer portal. That might be uh, something a bit more lightweight but this this is i think a really really fascinating area and there's already some initial companies that are that are doing this and for companies that want to be ready for ai what advice would you provide in terms of steps that they can take now to to prepare for that that wonderful day 
<laughs> so I think, first of all, start working on your APIs. And it's a little bit tricky, right? Because if you're a really small company, then, mm. well, well, how does that work? But I think it is about uh, becoming intentional about your interfaces. It's like, how do you allow people to interact with you? What ports are you going to leave open and what ports are you going to close down? And how do you do that in a way that it actually enables innovation and enables success rather than filters out opportunities and closes you down from opportunities? And so if you're a really large organization and you already have APIs, then you really need to start working on, okay, how are you going to publish that and how are you going to make that accessible for potentially for LLMs or for some next generation thing that is going to come after this? How do you communicate about those APIs and API design and, and, and things like that? And how do you address the skeptics that might, I mean, within, within every organization, often there's the battle of inertia, the, the option of doing nothing. How would you address concerns people say, again, that AI is hype or that the APIs are not necessarily the be, be all and end all? What's the benefits or drivers for acting? So from a certain size of organization, having platform APIs or having a platform like having an idea about what is your platform that allows you to be adaptive and reactive at scale, I think is, is inevitable and is essential. And what you'll probably see, and one of the best places to start building your platform is probably thinking about what capabilities you can abstract behind an API from a certain scale. Like if you're a really small business, maybe you don't need this, or maybe you can buy some of these capabilities from organizations. And even if LLMs are going to fizzle, which is unlikely, I would say, but it still is possible that regulation or whatever throws a wrench in this in this, this story, or that some of the promises are not fulfilled. But even then, building a platform and, and being uh, deliberate about your interfaces with the world is going to pay off no matter what you do, because it will help you to be to scale, to be at the same time be scalable and resilience. Now, what this is comes from the three economies model from Jay Bloom that I'm sure I'm not doing full honor to <laughs> because it's, it's probably better to go to the source. But he, he talks about the three economies under which a team can work. So there's economy of scale, which mm -hmm. is a team that is trying to reduce costs by doing the same thing over and over again and reducing variability. There's an economy of uh, differentiation which is like teams that run under economy of differentiation are creating new variety so that you can capture more value from customers and you can create mm -hmm. better products that address better customer needs so you can charge more money for it. And then he talks about the third economy, which is an economy of scope, which is this platform economy, which is about creating things that become better from reuse. And those are uh, things like APIs because APIs in truth are just designs. There, an API is a contract. It's not an API itself is not the server that is running the API. The API itself is purely the contract. So you you can imagine what probably will happen is that we're going to see a lot more standardization in APIs because right now we're in the era of API as a product, which means that companies create their own product, their own API product that they have to run like a product, like a service and you know, support and whatever, whatever. But I think that we're moving toward a world with APIs as utility 
where standards API designs are reused across the industry and everybody's using the same API designs. And this, we started already seeing some of this happening, like in the banking sector, in yeah. the telco sector, some of the standardization is happening. And that's, so you could say you could take a sit and wait approach where you just wait until other people have done the standardization work because it takes quite some effort. At the same time, the internal transformation you need to be able to work through APIs and to leverage APIs, that's not simple. And, and I think it's high time to start working, especially in larger organizations, to start working on the capabilities to be able to, to take advantage of these technologies. Yeah, there's some consistency, isn't there, with things like know your customer and identity management across banking yes. and, and telecoms where they they generally follow a standard or they are very similar between different APIs. This is like right now, even even the open open banking, even the PSD2 regulation that was implemented in the banking scene, I don't, well, there's exceptions, but almost all banks have implemented their own version. They've got different APIs. It's a mess. But I think because Today, having an API, having a good API is still a differentiator. But as these things will standardize and become more and more just stable stakes, I think that a lot of, a big part of the API surface will become more standardized and it will become more like a utility rather than a product uh, where, yeah, you can, you can just say, okay, I want, I want a payment done. I don't care about what service, I just want this payment done. And I, well, I want it done well, but yeah. but I don't care how it works. Is there any question that I haven't asked that I you think I should have asked? Ooh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I've covered a lot. Maybe, yeah, nothing pops up right away. There's a lot more service to cover, like the the platform thinking, ecosystem thinking. But I think what is relevant to this conversation, to this topic, has has been addressed. I would say. So your so your article uh, on the Pronovix website that's on the blog, and it was let's have a look, three ideas on AI readiness, the role of APIs and developer portals in generative AI systems. So if people want to know more, I guess that would be the starting point would be to look at that post. Yes, there's a sister post that's brewing about how can we create a common standard for declaring interfaces so that, well, basically organizations can say, these are all our interfaces or these are the interfaces we want to share and then make those from then on not only available for humans, but also to robots. Because if you think about it, how do people find out that you have a banking app? So you're banking with a certain bank. How do you find out that there is an app? Most likely somewhere in the footer, there's a link to the Play Store or to the iTunes, well, the Apple Store. Yeah. But what about more niche applications? How do you find out that there's an integration with your favorite billing software? Probably you have to go to your billing software and hope that they have a marketplace and find your bank in the billing software. This is kind of crazy, right? So we have 
sprinkled breadcrumbs or over our digital presences that people need to go and find and be lucky that they find to figure out that there is an interface that you can use to do a certain job, which is insane. So I think thinking about how can we change that so that we can become more deliberate in declaring what interfaces we accept interactions through, and then maybe you can find a backdoor still, but that it becomes, it becomes more clear what are the sanctioned channels, like the shipping routes for information where it's safe to go because here you're going to go really fast and you're not going to bump into any sandbanks. I think what we need, what we need to work on, and that, that's the article I'm currently thinking about. And as I said, like I had this conversation with Swapnil Sapar and a couple of other people at API Days in, in London, like Jean from Sanofi and Zdeniek Nemek from Superface. Like there, there's a couple of people mm-hmm. that that we have a conversation about. Like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we if we would be able to declare our interfaces? And I, you know, just like you have the robot.txt, mm. so something like that, to say this is how you get support here, or and here's our app for this capability, and there's our app for that capability. That's the integration for this system. And for the other stuff, here's the API, so something like that. And what about just regular customers? How do they find out what's, mm. what your interfaces are? Uh, I can even imagine that the European Union is going to regulate this and say every single company needs to have one of these files mm. with at least support, at least this, and at least that. And for support, you need to have this kind of fallback in case... Mm. Your machine doesn't do it, and then you have to go to a human. I can imagine this is going to be regulated so that this kind of games where companies go and hide behind phone paywalls and whatever other really, really toxic behavior, that that is no longer possible. So that kind of thinking, this is what I'm working on. And it's connected to something I've been chewing on for a long time, which is the Interface Manifesto, which is a complexity philosophical perspective on how interfaces help us to be more adaptive. But that's really half-baked and and it needs at least a couple of months, if not a couple of years of seasoning before I can come (laughs) out with that. Uh, But yeah, but this is is what it's inspired by. That's, yes, that looks like it will be an interesting article. So that will be coming out shortly, I guess. And if yes. people want to contact you, what's the best way? LinkedIn or? Pretty much. It used to be, it used to be Twitter, but mm. yeah, trash fire. So LinkedIn is currently the best way to to connect and to, to get in touch. There's also our website, of course. And, and if you have an inquiry about developer portals, then my colleagues or me are will be very happy to answer your, your contact request if you follow the proper interfaces. <laughs> Actually, yes, this is the same thing. <laughs> yes, same challenge. So we've done a lot in that course in this conversation. So Christoph, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alice. Thank you very, very much for reaching out and for giving me this opportunity to to have this conversation. And it, it anyway was already way too long since we last talked. <laughs> so it was yes. good to catch up. Uh, and yeah, thank thank you for doing the podcast and and for having me as your guest. You're welcome.